0: Hello, I'm your host, Anjana Kaushik Thaluri, and this is the Stories of Feminine Science podcast. Galaxies are huge collections of gas, stars, dust, and dark matter bound by gravity. Galaxies can be big and contain hundreds of billions of stars, like our Milky Way, or they can be small and contain fewer stars and therefore have lower masses in comparison. But how did these galaxies form and how do they sustain? Our guest speaker today, Dr. Kristen Mechwin, researches the formation and evolution of small, low mass galaxies that serve as the building blocks of larger galaxies, including spiral galaxies like our very own Milky Way. Christy is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Rutgers University. Her journey is quite exciting and unique. After graduating from Lehigh University with a mechanical engineering degree, Christy spent nine years outside of academia before she enrolled into the PhD program in astrophysics at the University of Minnesota. She completed her PhD part-time with two kids in diapers. She continued as a postdoc for five years and after that she was a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin. This is actually where I met with Christy. She was my research advisor for three years and she's one of the best mentors I've ever had. I'm so excited to know how she did it all. So without further ado, let's talk to Christy. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to see you.
1: It's great to see you too, Anjan. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited about this. It's fun to talk to you.
0: So we have a lot of exciting things to talk about today, and I want to start with when you first realized that you wanted to pursue astrophysics um, and was this during your childhood? So my journey is a little bit, it starts off sort
1: of typical, but then it, and it then it sort of takes a detour. So um, I first got interested in physics in high school. I had a great uh, high school physics teacher uh, and it just kind of clicked for me. It just made sense. I, I loved how you could you know solve the problem and get an answer and Um, connect all the different pieces in physics that we did in class together. And so I went to, when I went to college, I applied to college to study physics. Uh, And it might have been my beginning of my sophomore year, uh, where I had some advice from um, people at college that maybe there weren't many jobs in physics, and I should think about pursuing something else, right? There aren't a lot of jobs in physics. And so, you know, a number of people suggested that I look at engineering instead. That it's a more, you know, practical um, major. There are more jobs in engineering, and it's very physics based. The classes are, are not dissimilar. And so, I took the advice and I transferred into mechanical engineering. Um, but I, you know, not really fully understanding the landscape of what I was doing. And I remember calling my mom and telling her that I was changing majors and I was going to be an engineer. Um, and her and she was really confused and she she asked me are you, you going to drive a train <laughs> well, there, you know there wasn't there wasn't a lot of um it it, it was a bit of a uh, it was a bit of a leap let's just say for me to do this um and I said no mom I'm not I'm not going to drive a train I'm I'm going to study you know something called engineering um but I, I I graduated from engineering in the end and um took a job um in business, in fact, um, so the, the advice of engineering opens up more job opportunities was not bad advice, um, but uh, it took me a little bit farther away from the science. Um, but I thought this was a really interesting opportunity that I had in business. It was for a consulting firm. Uh, back then, it was called Anderson Consulting, and now it's called Accenture. It's a, one of the largest consulting firms in in the world, and spent um, better part of a decade working in business. Um, And it was, you know, it was interesting. I learned a ton of different things that I'd never before been exposed to, but I ended up coming home at night and um, reading astrophysics textbooks. So, you know, I'd climb into bed and instead of reading some, you know, fun fiction novel or something, I, I would open up these textbooks and just start and start reading. And, and it was slowly dawning on me that um, as much of a fun adventure it was to be in business, that maybe I really should refocus uh, and rethink my career and go back to um, what my original my original interests were. And so, um, you know, I decided at that point, in fact, I was living in Argentina um, working at an environmental consulting firm, um, but I decided that I, I needed to be an astrophysicist. So uh, I applied to graduate school back in the States um, and was accepted and started my PhD at Boston University um, and then never looked back, you know, while it was interesting for me in business, when I started the classwork in astrophysics and and kept moving forward, um, this is really what I, what I was meant to do. So it kind of comes full circle. And, and I, I started one way and, and, you know, meandered for quite a while that, Uh, ended up, uh, ended up in astrophysics.
0: Wow, that's such an interesting journey, and it's very different from the usual stories that I hear, you know, about how something in childhood inspired most people um, to pursue astrophysics. So thank you for sharing that. One thing that I think other students like me would be curious about is learning about how, you know, when you took a break from academia, and you were in industry for that long, how was your journey back into academia and like what were some of the challenges that you faced at that point of time and how did you overcome them?
1: That's a really good question. Um, so there's a couple different pieces to that to kind of pull apart. The first was my own internal challenges and my own internal struggles. So deciding that this is what I want to do. Um, and then being feeling confident and having the skills to do it are, you know, two different things. Um, so, You know, even applying to grad school at that point, having been away from physics classes for nearly a decade and facing um, the daunting challenge of taking the physics GRE, um, you know, was problematic. And I remember I was living in Buenos Aires at the time and I didn't have any textbooks with me. um, And you couldn't just order a book from Amazon back then. Um, So I went to the public library and they had one college textbook in physics in the library. And so, and you couldn't check it out. Um, so I sat in the library for days upon days trying to reteach myself all of the classical physics problems so that I could take the test uh, and, and also just studying for the general GRE. And um, I did well in the general GRE, but I have to admit, I pretty much bombed the physics GRE because <laughs> I'd been out of, out of those classes for so long. But there were challenges like that that I, I, you know, I spent a significant um, amount of my time after hours trying to prepare for it. And then when I got into a school and started, um, you know, I, I'd forgotten a lot of a higher level math. I, I didn't remember a lot of calculus. So the summer before grad school, again, I sat down with this calculus textbook and tried to reteach myself um, a lot of the math. Happy to say I was more successful at that than mastering the, the questions for the GRE. Um, so that ended up being okay. So there were, there were some just practical challenges of being away. Um, from school for so long. And then being in a, you know, in a very academic uh, academic setting and a a very high level, um, there was a little bit of um, an on-ramp, let's just say. Um, But there were some other challenges too that, uh, you know, because I didn't fit the mold of most applicants, not everyone knew what to do with me. And so, you know, I remember talking to one university, following up on my application and and the, the graduate uh, admissions committee actually said that to me and said, we don't really know what to do with you. You have such an unusual background. Uh, and I said, well, I'm going to be in the area. You know, I can stop by and chat with you. And they welcomed that uh, and got to know me a little bit because it was atypical and they were very open-minded about it. Uh, and they ended up accepting me to their program. Um, you know, I was accepted to a number of different programs, but in other places was not were not well as well received when I went to visit, I was dismissed out of hand, uh, as not being uh, a, uh, a candidate for a PhD program, and that I didn't belong in that institution, and that I shouldn't waste my time, and I should just leave. Um, so there was a, a mixed bag in coming back, um, and I'm happy to say that the majority of um, responses were more encouraging and open-minded than um, than not. Uh, but so yeah, there were some there were some bumps in the roads uh, road
0: along the way well to kind of push this question further a little bit in your introduction i mentioned that you had two young kids when you were pursuing your phd mm-hmm. so you talk a little bit about how you managed that you know being a mom as well as actually attending grad school and you know getting through with your phd because that to me is very inspiring
1: Well, oh, i appreciate that Anjana. and it was um when I was originally admitted to graduate school, uh, I did not have any children. And as I know you're finding out right now, those first year or two of grad school is very intense. <laughs> There's a lot of work for that that goes into your classes and it's extremely busy, it's very time consuming. And I, that's not just in astrophysics. I think that is a, is a pretty applicable statement to the first year of grad school in any field. Um, and so when I started grad school, I did not have any kids. Um, and I finished my two years of coursework Uh, at Boston University uh, and uh, left at the end of those two years when I was eight months pregnant. And um, I had two children in quick succession when I was um, taking a break from grad school. Uh, And then my husband and I moved. We moved to Minneapolis and I reapplied to the University of Minnesota to re-enter, restart my PhD. I'd been uh, on break at that point for um, just under two years. And my children were, were quite small. I had um, my daughter was only a few months old, and my son was uh, a year plus. Um, uh, and, and they accepted me. Uh, and when I started, I started slowly. So, with the support of the director of graduate studies at the University of Minnesota, they allowed me to come part time and manage uh, my time at home caring for my kids while I was also attending grad school. Um, And it took me longer, you know, longer to finish my PhD because uh, of the, of my schedule. Um, But in the end it was successful in a large part because I had the support of a few key people in the department who gave me a lot of flexibility. Uh, And um, was, it was, Well, I'm not really sure so much I can tell you about that story, but I'm not, I'm not sure if there's something in particular that you're interested in, in chatting about.
0: I'm curious to know what your typical day looked like, because as a second year student, I know what my day looks like. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just curious to know, like, how do you manage everything?
1: Yeah. Okay. That's a really, let's put it in some practical terms. That's a great question. Um, So when my kids were really little, um, uh, my husband was working a ton of hours Uh, And so we hired somebody to come into the house for uh, 15 hours a week. And so she was there 15 hours a week and I would go and use that time I drive to the University of Minnesota and I would spend that time um, doing research and I had I was extremely structured I had this to do list that broke down like every little task and I sat down and would just power through it. And if anybody tried to talk to me, I'm like, nope, nope, can't do it. Like this is this is my time here, you know, you can't talk to me. Um and uh and got as much in in this, you know, small amount of time per week that I possibly could. And then when the kids got old enough to go to preschool um, a few hours a day, I added in a different structure where I would set, um, you know, preschool doesn't last for very long, right? It's only a few hours in an afternoon every day. Um, And so I would set everything up. I would, I would set up my desk um, with everything that I needed. And um, I'd make sure that I had everything to go. And as soon as I dropped off my kids at preschool, I'd race back and I'd sit down and I would just, you know, fly as fast as I could until the clock turned whatever hour. And I went to pick my kids when they started uh, to be in school a little bit longer and they would go like in the mornings, my husband and I would arrange a weird schedule. So I would wake up super early in the morning and I'd leave for the university by like 6 a.m. And he would be there to get the kids on the bus by eight or 8.30. And I would work until they had like half day school. So I'd work until like 12 or whatever and then come home to get them off the bus. And so that would give me a longer bit of time of about, you know, six hours at that point a day um, to be able to do my work. And then it just kept growing, but it was just an organizational, you know, everything had to be set up so that when the kids weren't around or if they fell asleep for some reason, I would just hit the go button. Um, so, and, and it sounds really a little bit manic, but um, I loved it. Like if you're doing what you love, It doesn't feel hard it just it feels exciting um and it was really important to me to spend a lot of time at home when my kids were really little um and that's not a choice that everybody would make nor is it a choice that everybody can make but we were fortunate enough to be able for me to be able to do that uh and um it was really important to me so having something that i love to do and really wanting to spend time at home with my kids when they were really little it didn't really feel like a chore. It was just, it was just what I was doing. So
0: eventually they got older
1: and then I, you know, had a lot more freedom of my hours to work. Um, and so like when I said that I, my advisor and, and some key people in the department gave me flexibility, that's what I mean. Like I, I wasn't there all the time. I was there on, on odd hours and, and when I needed, when I could be there and and they were okay with that if I got my work done.
0: Wow. That is so inspiring. And, I was going to say the same thing. It just shows how much you love astrophysics. If you really love something, you will find a way. And this is a great example of that. Exactly. Totally. Yep. So moving on to your research side a little bit, could you share with our listeners how you got into the topic of low mass galaxies and what about them you find interesting? Well,
1: I started uh, working in low mass galaxies because um, of of an interesting project that came my way in graduate school, which is often, you know, which is a fairly common story, right? You're you're working with somebody as your advisor, and they have some interesting problem that they, that you can work on. And uh, my advisor was Evan Skillman at the University of Minnesota, who works a lot in low mass galaxies, and he had this um, interesting project to try and measure the characteristics of burst of star formation in low mass galaxies. Um, and so that's where uh, I've done some previous work with other advisors, like at the Boston University and such, um, where I started my Ph.D. Uh, but it's really this project with um, with Evan that and uh, lo- that I started working low mass galaxies. Uh, and then after that, it kind of takes takes on a life of its own. You know, one question leads to another question, leads to another question. And there's so many interesting things about low mass galaxies that it ended up just sort of growing uh, in um, the scope of my work focused on these low mass galaxies. And so many, many, many years later here, I am still still interested in, in studying them.
0: Just out of curiosity, what is the lowest mass of a galaxy that you've come across in your work? Uh, so one of the I think the lowest mass galaxy that's been found
1: so far um, has about a thousand times the mass of our sun and stars. So a thousand solar masses and stars. And it's this small little satellite of our own Milky Way galaxy. Um, and we think that, you know, likely it was formed as a bigger galaxy, but a lot of its material has been stripped away
0: by um,
1: being so close to the Milky
0: Way. Um, but that's the smallest one we know about. Wow. Do we know how it manages to stay together as a galaxy?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this galaxy might have formed being um, somewhat more massive and lost some of its mass. Um, so that might explain, uh, you know, why it's, it's just so low. But there, it's an open question, this limit of galaxy formation, you know. And so, you know, we think that um, there's a lot of theory that suggests uh, there is a minimum of dark matter mass and a minimum of your gravitational potential that you need in order to be able to accrete enough gas in early times, you know, into your galaxy to form stars. Uh, and there's um, you know, a bunch of predictions on how big that that dark matter mass should be and to, to accrete the gas and then for the gas to successfully cool and fragment and form stars. Uh, and found a galaxy that I was saying that's only a thousand solar masses and stars that's not the, the formation mass, we think it was bigger at some point in the past. And so finding something that has um, really a galaxy, really close to the limit of galaxy formation is um, kind of a, a hot topic. And there are a lot of people that have been looking for systems like that. Um, we I can tell you that what I, th- I think it is, um, but we don't really have any um, tight observational constraints on, on what, what it is.
0: That- Sounds really exciting and it's such an interesting topic. You recently obtained time on the James Webb Space Telescope. So could yes. you can share a little bit about that experience, you know, how it was uh, personally to you, as well as how you think that would shape um, the future of the study of low-mass galaxies and the questions that we're interested in answering about them.
1: So in fact, it, it ties into your previous question about, you know, the limits of galaxy formation. And so I'm gonna kind of address the science question that I wanted to address with James Webb, and then I can talk about, you know, what the process is like um, in in this. So when galaxies are first forming, you know, they start with some sort of dark matter over density, some dark matter halo, and they accrete gas into these halos and the gas, you know, will will cool and fragment and form stars. Um, But when they were first forming, in the early universe, um, there are, uh, the other galaxies that were forming around them, also forming stars, collectively put out this, you know, hard radiation field, and this radiation field ionizes the gas in between galaxies. Um, but in very small systems, it also heats up the galaxy in the gas inside of a galaxy, and this makes it very difficult for a galaxy to form stars um, with 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 a hotter um, with hotter gas. And it also makes it harder to accrete new material. And so um, this is the epoch of reionization in the early universe. And we think that um, this epoch uh, and this uh, ionizing photons from early galaxies really put kind of a limiter on the smallest of systems on how quickly they could grow. And maybe some of them are kind of arrested in their development, or maybe some are kind of teetering just on the math threshold where uh, reionization may have slowed their growth or made their growth pause, um, but then after you know a certain amount of time, the gas eventually was able to cool and form stars, and the galaxy continues to grow a little bit. And we have found a galaxy in the nearby universe called Leo P um, that seems to fit in this characteristic mass scale where it was sort of teetering on being um, having its growth and star formation uh, arrested by reionization. For a, while, for a little while, but then potentially cooling, the gas cooling and, and reforming stars. And at least theoretically, it sits in that mass regime. And so we've studied this galaxy with the Hubble Space Telescope um, to probe with this question, but despite the abilities, the capabilities of Hubble, it, we couldn't get data quite deep enough to answer the science question we found hints of an answer on whether or not, um, you know, the the history of Leo P might've been impacted by reionization, but the uncertainties were still um, too large to be able to um, rule out or confirm a couple of different theories around this. Uh, With James Webb, because it has a bigger mirror, uh, we're able, we're gonna be able to collect more light on, on Leo P and be able to image Um, the faintest, oldest stars in the galaxy to be able to try and tease apart um, this question in more detail. Uh, And so I I wrote a proposal to do just that and look at Leo P's really early history um, by studying some of the oldest and faintest stars in the galaxy. Um, And so the proposal process, I've written a lot of proposals in my career, um, and I've used Hubble quite a bit, and I've written proposals on a whole bunch of other things. Um, but I have to tell you that that proposal process for James Webb was the most intense and the hardest one I've ever been through. It's an incredibly complicated um, telescope uh, and there are technically a lot of considerations that went into designing a program to make the telescope do what you wanted it to do. Um, So uh, it was quite a journey um, and I was of course really excited to have the program selected so I'm excited about getting the data, but it was, um, it's an incredible piece of engineering, that telescope.
0: Yeah, congrats for getting that opportunity. You know, it sounds really exciting. We talked about your experience as a graduate student and up until getting your PhD. So what was your career after that?
1: So I, you know, I tend to stick to this non-traditional path. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't go the traditional physics undergrad or astrophysics undergrad right into grad school. I did physics, meandered into engineering and business, came back to grad school, then took a slow road through my grad school with my children. Um, And so when I graduated, I decided to be non-traditional yet again. Uh, And uh, by the time I graduated, my children were already school-aged and I had a lot more flexibility to be able to dedicate to my career. Um, But I wasn't prepared to move quite yet. Um, So the typical path, of course, after you get your Ph.D. is to apply for postdoctoral research positions, which are two to three year positions with a scientist at another institution, someplace that you haven't done your Ph.D. And you, you know, you get more mentorship often uh, and you can continue working on interesting questions. Um, and then in our field, it's not uncommon to apply for a second postdoc position, where you might move again for a couple of years and get to work with some other people. Well, that was um, a more challenging proposition um, for me. I think it's a challenging proposition, actually, for many people, that cadence of moving every couple of years uh, is not easy. Um, and um, with my with my husband's career and my kids um, in school at that time, I... I I wasn't really in a position to take that on. Um, And so I I did something different. I went out and wrote some proposals to get my own funding. And um, after successfully getting a couple of proposal and grant money, I funded my own postdoc position at the University of Minnesota and I stayed put. Um, And so I continued to work for um, five years, in fact, after I finished my PhD in sort of a postdoc-like role um, but really, uh, uh, you know, was not funded by somebody else, I had managed to get enough grant money to support um, that path. And then it was time to for change. You know, my, my whole family, we all wanted to try something different. And so I, um, uh, jointly with my husband, you know, this two, the two career problem um, takes some coordination. Uh, and so my husband was off finding interesting job opportunities for himself, and I was off making lists of interesting departments around the country where I uh, might be able to transition to. Uh, and both of those equations overlapped, or both of those, um, you know, datasets ca- came to overlap in Austin, Texas, uh, and at the University of Texas. Uh, and so um, when he found a really interesting job opportunity in Austin, I contacted the University of Texas at Austin and. Um, met with the people in the department, the chair of the department, and they offered me a position uh, as a research um, a research role, and so I transitioned down there from uh, Minnesota and ended up as um, what's called research faculty um, at UT Austin for, uh, I guess, another three or four, four or five years. Yeah, before then, um, moving on to apply for a faculty position, which is my current role. Um, so it was really, even the role at UT Austin was non-traditional. I didn't go in to apply for your typical tenure track faculty job on a nationwide search. I decided I wanted to continue kind of, um, um, this sort of self-funded research position, because it just gave me so much flexibility. And, and so it, it carried me through for nearly, um, you know, seven, eight or nine years post PhD. You know, when I talked about like how what, writing this proposal for James Webb was really hard and that I have a lot of proposal experience, I really have written a lot. You know, if you fund your own work, you really do need to be writing a ton of proposals in order to make that happen. So um, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of years of of proposal writing that I have under my belt um, just because that was the nature of the beast. That was the type of, of uh, position I crafted for myself.
0: Wow. I mean, that's such an inspiring journey. One of the main reasons I wanted to ask you this question, because we're only aware of the traditional path, but we don't realize that there are these other paths that you can take based on what you're interested in. So this is great to listen to. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: You're welcome. And um you know what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. So this is this was I crafted this not because I knew about it, but because I needed to craft it this way, or I desired to craft it this way with my very family-driven um, in the early years of my child rearing. Um, so and it, and it's not without its challenges too. Um, you know, but uh, it it was. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I would I would try to do the same thing. It was a really good fit for me, um, personally and professionally.
0: So in your career, can you tell us about an aha moment? You know, like kind of when you had a breakthrough. Um, You know, I sort of feel like there are aha moments in almost every project.
1: So uh, I don't know if there's one that stands out, but the whole kind of life cycle of a project in astrophysics is you may come up with a question or something that you think might be interesting to study, and you um, write a proposal to get the data to do the work, and um, once you get the data, you have to, you know, reduce the data and analyze it. And then it either shows what you think it might have shown, what you wanted to see, or maybe it doesn't. Um, and you start kind of putting together and crafting, you know, the background and the story around the results. And you get to a certain part, at least I do, in this life cycle of a project where um, you need to now connect in what, you, what your figures and plots are showing you, what the data is showing you, with how this fits into our larger understanding of the universe and, or the galaxies or whatever, whatever particular topic it is. And there's usually an aha moment at that point, right? I mean, even if the data is suggesting um, what you thought it was going to find, um, there's always something in there that's a little different. There's always some little um, nuance or sometimes it's a big thing that you weren't expecting. Um, And so there's always a period of a project where I'm grappling with that. And I'm I'm reading papers from the literature to give me context for, you know, what other people have done and how this, you know, new new piece of information might fit into what we already know about um, some topic. Uh, And there's almost always a moment where the light bulb goes up. Ah, I see it. That's the connection. That's how it fits together. You know, this is really what attracted me to physics way back in high school is that it just makes sense, right? When you can put these things together, and whether it's something that somebody's showing you that they already know, or if you're doing it in research and making that first connection yourself, um, it's those little moments that I would call my "aha" moments that happen almost in every project. And that's really what—that's really what we're going for. It's that little nugget that um, is is so exciting, uh, and um, you know, often worth the wait.
0: So, um, one question that just occurred to me as we were talking about this is I have some friends who are curious to know what it takes to become a graduate student. You know, they're at the crossroads, and they're wondering if they should get into grad school or not. So how would you think about it, you know, whether you should pursue graduate school or not?
1: I think it really, um, I don't know if there's
0: just one particular sign.
1: Well, actually, I, re- I, I, I will, yes, there is something. And that is, if you can't see yourself doing anything else more than this, you know more than grad school. If this is really stands out far and away above anything any other opportunities, then that to me is a is a clear sign that um, it's it's something worth pursuing. Um, you know grad school. I often joke that it's um, a PhD is often uh, a degree in persistence. You know it's 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 long. There are a lot of years, and um, it can be very consuming. <laughs> Um, and so if you're entering grad school or thinking about entering grad school, but you're also interested in all of these other options in your career, you know, it, it, it might be a longer road because it, it truly, it's persistence in the end, I think, and determination um, that to complete a PhD is, it can only really be successful, I think, if it's fueled by, um, uh, I know, passion and love for it above everything else. Um, So if you're if you've got all these other interests and are somewhat distracted by them, it it may be a harder road because you might not have that, you know, all consuming passion for it to stay the course uh, and complete it.
0: That's that's really great advice. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that. Another thing I was curious about is if you could go back to, you know, when you were in graduate school and give yourself advice based on what you know about the future, what would that be?
1: Uh, let's see. I think I think the advice would be it wouldn't really be pra- it wouldn't be about anything pragmatic of like how to do your career or anything like that. I think it would just be a reminder. Don't compare yourself to others. Find your own journey. you know, do your thing that makes you happy um, and do it well. you know work hard, uh, and the success will come. Um, and don't compare yourself to everyone else. I think that's a, a trap that we all um, fall into in, a, in our society, especially with social media. That you know, we're we see um, often some of the successes that other people have, and sometimes it's curated successes through social media. And I think there's a tendency in our society to create what you know I, I think of as a composite person, where you see this this little success from this one person. And then you hear about another success from another person and then another person. And then suddenly you've crafted this composite person that has these successes in all these different areas and it's not real. And it can be, um, it can be uh, demotivating and make it a harder road than it needs to be. Because I think you know, there's, there's tons of interesting science questions out there and there are many, many ways to define success. And so I would remind myself when I started graduate school, I very much had that mentality of I'm I'm here and I'm gonna do some fun things and I'm excited about it. Um and I think at some point you kind of get caught up in things a little bit and for, and I think I forgot that for a little while. And so I would want to go back to my graduate student self and remind her, you're doing great. Don't you don't have to compare yourself to anyone, you know, you've got your own measuring stick um and and you're doing it your way and you know bravo
0: yeah i mean this is so important that it applies to any field you know any any, any person any field and i think it's a it's a trap that
1: um that as a i think it, it as a woman it's an easy one to fall into i think it affects everybody but um i i do think that um as at least you know, I think it, it can be something that women are more likely to fall into. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not helpful.
0: So what would your advice be um, to all students, you know, aspiring to be scientists and especially uh, female students?
1: Well, there's, a, there's probably like a flip side of, to the comments that I just made about not comparing yourself to others. Um, and that is, um, you know, it's your journey And um, you know, if you're, uh, um, it's your journey. And so if if, you you need to be true to yourself and make it work for you, there are many people um, along the way that told me I couldn't do it or that I shouldn't do it or um, were disparaging or dismissal of my successes because I took this non-traditional path. Um, Being a mom and working part-time in science um, was not uh, always respected by others. Um, and uh, you can listen to those voices um, or you can ignore them and listen to um, yourself. And so I think that, you know, as a, as a woman in science and as a mother in grad school, I certainly had my fair share of um, comments like that. Um, and I, but I, I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people face those. And you really just need to, to um, follow your own dreams. And it doesn't matter if they think that they that I shouldn't succeed. Um, it's irrelevant. And that's not to say that I haven't done it all by myself. I think that there's in almost any person's success stories, if they faced significant challenges, there's usually one or two people that have really been there for support and sort of cheerleading them through it. And I am no exception, there were were a few people in my, um, especially in my early career, that were really supportive and that believed in me. Um, And so you can kind of just, you know, try not to listen to those 10 voices that are telling you that you're not gonna do it and you're not gonna make it and listen to your own internal voice and the voices of maybe a select few of those around you that are are cheerleading you and championing your path. so, I mean, and that's not just applicable to astrophysics, I, you know, it's applicable to any career. Um, as a woman in science, I think we face it a lot, but I, I can tell you that I don't think I faced as many, um, you know, obstacles as a, as a Black woman in science. And so, you know, there are different um, levels of this that everybody faces in all careers. And so that's what my advice would be, is be true to yourself, follow your own dreams. Um, they're always going to be naysayers and just try to ignore them the best you can.
0: Thank you so much for that advice. Um, I, I think it applies to, you know, everyone listening. So I, I really hope that our listeners took away some great things from our interview today. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and thank you so much for being on this interview.
1: It's been so much fun to see you,
0: Anjanan, to be part of this.
1: And it's just so inspiring that you're doing this. I mean, it's it's really great. And I know how busy grad school is and for you to find the time to do this is, um, is just really amazing. So congratulations on that.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christy. So nice to see you again. You too, Anjana. So that brings us to the end of episode three. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for more exciting episodes.